Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another edition of News and Views. Thank you for joining us every week here on the world's leading transit executive podcast. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at the new infrastructure bill and the impact it has on our transportation industry. And then we have a newsmaker interview with Karen Philbrick, Executive Director of the Mineta Transportation Institute. And then a look at some of the top trends now as we're in 2022. All that on this edition of Transit Unplugged. Well, the American Public Transportation Association Business Member Board of Governors uh, recently held their annual conference. And there was some talk there and in their newsletter, a real good in-depth discussion of the new infrastructure bill. As you know, President Biden, when he signed the infrastructure bill, uh, not only signed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, it also was our Transportation Reauthorization Act. The provisions comprise the five-year surface transportation reauthorization law, meaning that many of the transit provisions are dependent on passage of the annual appropriations bills before the money begins to be distributed. But the bill itself, opened up the spigots for the public transportation industry to receive its largest boost of financial aid from Washington in history. Over the next five years, $107 billion will be poured into public transportation coffers and agencies, and $102 billion for commuter rail, Amtrak, high-speed and higher-speed rail was also authorized by this act. Some $39 billion of that new spending is a boost to federal transit assistance programs over the five-year period. Federal public transportation programs will receive a 63% increase in funding overall authorized by the Act, but some programs receive an even larger boost, such as a nearly six-fold increase in passenger intercity rail. Other transformative, what they're calling Green Deal investments, include the low and no emission portion of the Major Capital Investment Grants Program, or SIG, which is expected to increase by tenfold to more than a billion dollars per year over the next five years of the reauthorization. A program to fund redesign and retrofits of the rail legacy system stations to be accessible for wheelchair users and to meet the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act will result in $1.75 billion in new funding for these rail systems, including channeling most of it for work in New York, Chicago, Boston, and New Jersey. Outside of, but related to transit infrastructure in the act, It provides for major investments in vehicle electrification procurements and related infrastructure. In California, for example, the state will receive around $384 million over the next five years to expand the network of charging stations available for electric vehicles. And all the new legislation provides $15 billion in funding for electrification of non-transit transportation infrastructure. In fact, more than half of the bill's $550 billion in new spending is transportation focused with $283.8 billion dedicated to categories for transportation. The U.S. Department of Transportation is receiving $150 billion in funding to be issued directly to cities, local governments, and states. Of that $150 billion, $50 billion will be distributed based on funding formulas. However, get this, $100 billion will be left available for competitive grants. This is an unprecedented amount of funding which provides federal administrators with significant discretion. This cash infusion will shape the infrastructure of the U.S. in the coming decade and beyond. While funds are available through grants for states and governments, there are several areas of opportunity for private companies to obtain grants under the infrastructure bill, specifically in the areas of electrification and transportation, which will allow for partnerships between 
governmental and private entities. Funds will be available through the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA program, administrators for grants and rebates through competitive application. The grant programs funded by the act are expected to be issued in a wave of funding opportunities beginning right now. Formula funds are expected to flow to the states within a few months now that the bill has been signed. In addition, grant programs already in existence should also receive funds within six months of the current fiscal year appropriations bill signing. However, new grant programs will likely receive funds later, perhaps by the end of this year at the latest. The effects of this bill, both in the short term as well as throughout the rest of the decade, mean that both sides of the public transportation industry, meaning agencies as well as vendors, should plan on seeing a tsunami of opportunities coming their way. Several items in the news today that I also wanted to cover on today's News and Views Transit Unplugged podcast. Sad news out of Atlanta this last week has rocked the transit industry. A well-known CEO, Jeffrey Parker, 55, CEO of MARTA, the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, took his own life on January 14th. MARTA Chairwoman Rita Scott called Parker an outstanding leader and steward of MARTA, whose passing leaves us all heartbroken. We're devastated at this loss as we value Jeff's leadership, and we look forward to him bringing his vision to transit to fruition. She said the entire Metro Atlanta region owes him a debt of gratitude for his transformational efforts, and we will not stop working to build on the foundation he created. Parker had more than 35 years of experience in the transportation industry. During his career, he served as commissioner of Connecticut DOT and held leadership posts during his 20-year tenure at the MBTA, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. After his passing, the MARTA Board of Directors has voted unanimously to name Collie Greenwood as the agency's interim general manager and CEO. Greenwood joined MARTA in 2019 as head of bus operations and was promoted to deputy general manager of operations in January of last year. I've been invited and plan to attend the funeral of Mr. Parker this Saturday in Atlanta. In other news, Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, WMATA, General Manager and CEO Paul Wiedefeld has announced he will retire in six months after more than six years leading the agency. Wiedefeld is credited with improving rail safety and reliability of WMATA through SafeTrack, a maintenance program that has achieved three years of critical track work in just over a year. Prior to joining the agency, he was CEO of the BWI Airport, Baltimore Washington International Airport. During his tenure there, BWI grew to become the leading passenger airport in the Washington metropolitan region. Wiedefeld also served as CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration uh, prior to me being there. And he was a good friend to me when I got there at MTA. He was at the airport, kind of took me under his wing, so to speak, and um, showed me around the agency and, and helped me understand how MDOT one of the uh, most diverse modal administrations in the country at a state department of transportation operates. Uh, but he has announced that he is retiring, giving the agency six months. Prior to that, he served uh, in the, as a consultant in the private sector at uh, Parsons Brinkerhoff and has been very active in the industry. Uh, we will miss him. He was the right man, in my opinion, for the right time at WMATA agency. It's gonna be big shoes uh, to replace him there at that agency. Speaking of big shoes to replace, uh, Andy Byford, London's transport commissioner, who left New York, as you know, last year and went back to his home in London to take over at TFL, Transport for London, as what's called the transport commissioner. Uh, this week, he announced a new reorganization of his agency that I think highlights what a lot of us have been saying about the industry for a long time. Uh, he said this new uh, executive team structure will be introduced to best meet the coming challenges and opportunities as London prepares for a new phase of recovery from the pandemic. 
The new structure is designed to ensure that TFL is in the best possible shape to become an even more efficient organization focused on financial sustainability and on supporting London's recovery. The structure of Andy Byford's executive team will be simplified, reducing his number of direct reports from 11 down to seven. This new team, which will represent reduced costs at the executive level, will lead a single unified organization with a centrally set strategic framework that further embeds TFL's vision and values. Basically, he's removing the silos in the organization where rail and bus operated separately. So Andy Lord, currently managing director of London Underground, will become TFL's new chief operating officer, bringing all of TFL's operations together in one place for the very first time. Congratulations to Andy Byford on this important step toward unifying operations there at one of the world's largest and most iconic transit systems, Transport for London. That's our look at headline news here today on Transit Unplugged. Now stay tuned for a great interview with Karen Philbrick of the Mineta Institute. Hey, I'm with Karen Philbrick today on Transit Unplugged and excited to have you with us today, Karen. Thank you. Excited to be here, Paul. Tell us about what you do. Sure. Well, I'm the executive director, CEO of the Mineta Transportation Institute, which is a university transportation center at San Jose State University in the heart of Silicon Valley. And you, you were saying you're part of the university, which the university is the biggest. Tell me what you're, what that was about. It's the biggest, most students, right? San Jose State University is part of the 23-campus California State University system, which is the largest four-year public university system in our nation. Wow. And how long have you been there? I've been there 12 years. 12 years. Wow. And you hear people hear so much about the Mineta Institute. Um, you all do so much work. I want to kind of break it down or unpack it today for people so they can understand what it is your, your group does. You're executive director. Do you have a staff? Yes, I have a staff. I have an excellent staff that helps supports all of our initiatives, which focus on surface transportation research, technology transfer, education, and workforce development. Now, we have a lot of listeners around the world in 100 countries who may not know who Normanetta was. Uh, you know, those of us in the United States, of course, he's, he's revered uh, in the transportation world. But why don't you tell us who he was and why this institute was named after him? Well, let me tell you who he is, because he just celebrated his 90th birthday on November 12th. I saw that actually posted on LinkedIn. That's cool. Secretary Norman Y. Mineta is, quite frankly, a true American hero. So at the age of 12 years old during World War II, he was, along with his family, placed in an internment camp in Wyoming. And rather than becoming bitter, he found a way forward. And in fact, through Boy Scouts, forged an alliance with Alan Simpson, who was a Republican in Congress. And those two young men at 12 years old became fast friends. And that relationship served them well throughout their years in Congress together because it really allowed them to reach across the aisle and form consensus and a way forward. But back to Norm Mineta, he actually became a city council member here in San Jose. Then he was the first Asian American of a major metropolitan city in the United States. Then he went on to serve Congress for 20 years representing our district before serving as Secretary of Commerce in the Clinton administration, followed by Secretary of Transportation in the Bush administration. That's very unique. In fact, in our history, only four people have served in different administrations and served well being from different political parties. Yeah, that's he's he was Democrat, right? Or is a Democrat? 
He is a Democrat, correct? Right, yeah. Um, but I, he's a bipartisan leader is what I remember him being when he was serving as Secretary of Transportation, which I think was great. And so in the in that role, uh, after he retired, then uh, what, the university decided to have the transportation uh, kind of office set up and named for him? Well, he likes to say that he was named after an airport, after a freeway, and after a university center. Yeah. But in fact, he was the author of Safety Lou's surface transportation legislation. And within that, it created the University Transportation Center, operated through the U.S. Department of Transportation. Now, that was many, many years ago. That program has since grown into a competitive program that is nationwide. And to this day, the Mineta Transportation Institute leads a competitively selected UTC. That's great. So tell us what you do at there at the center. I would love to tell you about that. Well, in terms of our USDOT consortium, it's called the Mineta Consortium for Transportation Mobility. And we lead four partners, Howard University in Washington, DC, Navajo Tech University in rural New Mexico, and the University at North Carolina at Charlotte. You may ask yourself, why these four partners? Well, in fact, we put these partners together with an eye toward diversity, diversity in geographic location, diversity in student population served, and diversity in areas of expertise. So here in the Silicon Valley, you have San Jose State, which is a Hispanic serving institution, as well as an, an Asian American Pacific Islander serving institution. We are really in the congested Bay Area, You've got Howard University, which is a historically black college and university in Washington, D.C., the fellow bookend of congestion, if you will. And yeah. then you've got Navajo Tech, which is a tribal college in rural New Mexico with an unemployment rate topping 51 percent pre-COVID and many unpaved lanes, very ripe for developing workforce development programs and ladders of career opportunity within that environment. And so collectively, all of our work, which is super exciting, focuses on improving the mobility of people and goods. That's great. And so tell us about some of the work that you're proud of. Okay. Well, let's see. That's kind of hard to narrow down here. We lead about 126 research projects at present, spanning okay. everything from the use of machine learning for social good to autonomous vehicles to gender diversification within the transit industry. We have a strong focus on cybersecurity, emergency management, and uh, counterterrorism against surface transportation targets. But we don't stop there. What makes us unique, Paul, is that we have a small central staff, which allows us to program our research dollars very broadly and in line with what those high priority research needs are as communicated to us from people like yourself, from our elected officials, from transit agency CEOs, and from our modal administrations. So we listen to those. And then we digest that into a competitive request for proposals that we broadly disseminate. This ensures that we have the very best talent addressing the highest priority research topics. And where do you get your money? Where do I get our money? Well, let me tell you, we work hard for it. It's all competitively awarded. I don't want anybody to think we're getting an earmark because that is not the case. So we lead one consortium through USDOT. The second consortium is funded through California Senate Bill 1, very um, casually referred to as the gas tax, if you will. Within that legislation was a line item to support university transportation research and workforce development in the transport sector. We won the competition to lead all of that work 
for the California State University system, which again is composed of those 23 campuses. That's we also thing. have big contracts with Caltrans, with the Department of Homeland Security, and with private entities such as Google and Booster Fuels and others. What's some of the uh, most recent findings from some of those studies that have come out? I mean, one of the things that we're hearing a lot in the news, and we're actually going to, we are focused on it here on Transit Unplugged, is cybersecurity. Oh. Uh, a lot of agencies have been hacked lately and been, you know, you, it's almost like every week you hear about a different transit agency getting one of these, um, you know, ransomware attacks, et cetera. So uh, are you all involved in that at all, in the research in that? How serendipitous is this? Now you're speaking my language. We saw this writing on the wall and 18 months ago, we funded a study looking at cybersecurity readiness within the transit industry. We worked exceptionally closely with the American Public Transportation Association, as well as their members to really dig down and get some of this firsthand data. And quite frankly, what we found is the preponderance don't have any policy in place in terms of cybersecurity readiness or training. So what does that mean? So we're now working on rolling out a pilot program with a mid-sized transit agency, looking at developing a training protocol that could be easily adopted within other agencies. But just to give you a little context of how um, our robust findings are being implemented, on November 4th of this year, the findings of that cybersecurity research study were delivered in testimony to the House TNI committee, and some findings are included in TSA's directives for cybersecurity readiness. But we realized that one study is not enough, so now we're expanding that to look at cybersecurity readiness across the vendor supply chain. We're also looking at protecting personal identifiable information, which is particularly timely given the recent Toronto transit attack. And so we're taking these things very seriously. And what's interesting and very low hanging fruit is what we know is that the majority of these breaches come from internal people, meaning maybe maybe I have no bad intentions whatsoever, but I fall prey to a phishing scam in an email and I press on that cute picture of the dog or whatever it is that catches my fancy. Well, then I've inadvertently let somebody in through the back end of my system, which could bring down the house in terms of sharing information that should not be publicly shared, or let's take that a step further. What happens if it gets into our positive train control or other systems? I mean, right. this is this is a huge topic, one that gives me goosebumps with both fear and excitement, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. Um, what about autonomous vehicles? What are you hearing about them? Where, where are we using them? Where, where does the future look like? I know there's been some concern on, um, you know, uh, unions, et cetera, that it would cost jobs. Um, most transit agencies are ensuring that it doesn't do that right now. But um, some of the studies you say you've looked at that or looked at the topic of autonomous vehicles? You know, we are looking at that topic. And I want to be very clear. I'm not the researcher that's investigating that myself. I represent right. the institute that's funding some of that work. But our relationship with the unions and with our brothers and sisters on the front line is exceptionally important. And what we're paying close attention to is the opportunity for retraining, retraining people who may be in positions that may be negatively impacted by automation. So how can we continue to make sure that there's meaningful, high paying, family supporting jobs available to that particular group? That's one. But the companion piece to the autonomous discussion, I think, is workforce development. 
yes. and how we're struggling to fill that pipeline. And so can those two pieces of the conversation merge in a successful way forward? Now, let's be clear, Paul, I think we're a long way away from fully autonomous vehicles being ever prevalent and where we're all hopping in and feeling equally safe. I think we have to look at not only the technology and where it's at in terms of readiness, but where are we in terms of user acceptance? Is my 79-year-old dad going to feel completely safe getting in the back of an autonomous vehicle and closing his eyes? For him, yes. My mother, of course, is going to be holding the ocean handle and be scared to death over there. So we have different levels of comfort that we're going to have to pay attention to. But what we do know right now is there are some autonomous vehicles fully in play in Chandler, Arizona, for example, where you, if you live within a certain geofenced area, you can bring up the app and a fully autonomous vehicle without a driver will come and pick you up. What we know is people become desensitized pretty quickly, forget that they're either being monitored or that they're in a different environment and they quickly start to feel safe and maybe partake in some of those habits we're hoping to engineer out, like eating, being on their cell phone or distracted in some other way. That's the short answer. Yeah. Well, I guess one more question because you you have... Um, you know, kind of at your fingertips, all this information, where do you see public transportation going? I mean, we're headed into 2022. uh, And, you know, to me, the three hot trends coming out of the pandemic, which hopefully we are now, uh, we're uh, adding equity and inclusion to public transportation. I'm working on a book on that topic, actually. Uh, And then, um, you know, zero emission buses, right? That's the hot topic right now. And then the third one is microtransit, right? As, As people adjust what they're doing and maybe move some routes around and People don't have those uh, peak of the peak periods anymore in the big cities as, you know, hybrid workplaces come back. Those are three of the trends I see. What are you seeing going into 2022 in the future for our industry? Well, I think that's a loaded question and a super exciting topic. And I wish I had a crystal ball that would tell yeah. me what's going to happen. Well, you, you probably have the best one we've all got. I mean, all that <laughs> research you guys are doing. You know, I think the first thing we need to pay attention to is people are still perceiving public transit through a lens of contamination. Okay. Which we know is absolutely not true. We have the scientific literature to support that assertion. And obviously we are are now coming out of COVID and we're seeing more people re-enter in-person engagements, whether that's through the work or professional work, professional or personal reasons. I think that this is a service, obviously, Paul, that we're always going to have. We're seeing demand at different times because maybe it's not the people using the service to reach their offices. Maybe it's choice riders using it for playtime so that they can drink or have fun or not be distracted in some other way. I think we still need to continue to tell the story of how this is a very safe way to transport ourselves. But more meaningfully, I think we really connected with the essential worker story during COVID-19 and how this service is critical to the lives of many. Let me take that a step further. If you look at some of the research findings, say for example, of veterans returning from combat or from being overseas, what you see is they reintegrate into society better, more meaningfully and in a more healthful way if they're located in close proximity to transit. Why? Because they can reach their doctor's appointments, they can reach those social engagements that are meaningful, We also know that when you have a strong social support system, you live longer, you deal with stress better. In public transit, we're giving people that vehicle to reach these experiences that make everybody's lives more meaningful. 
So I think we have to look at catering to a slightly different ridership as we go back into this new normal, which likely will contain a hybrid working environment for our more white collar and professional positions. Microtransit, I think, is great, but I think we're having a problem with people not using it safely. Like the two people I just watched crash outside my window. Oh, no. Two people with no helmets that are in their 20s that are making shall I say, bad decisions, thinking that they can't get hurt until they just hit that tree. And so if we can get people to use microtransit such as scooters safely, we could actually increase ridership because what we know is the majority of the population won't walk more than a quarter mile to a half mile to reach a bus, a light rail, or some other public transit options. So we need to help them with that first last mile connection. That's great. I don't think I hit on every point, but I think no, I that's hit all on good. <laughs> that that the the point you made about the PTSD and all that that's very interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for a lot a lot longer, but unfortunately we're out of time. Uh, thank you so much. We now if somebody around the world wants to get a hold of your group, you know, and find out what you're doing. Where on the web should they go? Absolutely, and thank you for asking that question because. All of our work is publicly funded, which means it's available for free download. And let me be clear, all of our research is peer-reviewed, professionally edited, and formatted. It's downloaded by about 157 countries on an annual basis, and we have maps that show some of this. And for the people who are too busy to read a full report, it's got a two-page research brief and webinars associated with it. So just do a search on the Mineta Transportation Institute and that will take you to our website, which is also reachable at transweb.sjsu.edu. Very good. Thank but we you didn't talk good. about workforce development. All right, we let's go to- ahead. Give me the last minute on workforce development. Karen. So much important stuff. Yeah. Right here, right now in transportation, over 50% of the current workforce is eligible for retirement. Now you take that combined with the burgeoning huh. pop. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's an interesting fact. Oh, it's it's downright frightening in some yeah. ways if you think about it. Well, yeah, especially skilled mechanics and things like that that are critical. That's right. We're talking everything from the C-suite to the front lines in terms of available positions. Now, Paul, why is this so critical? Because as you know, we're one of 16 critical infrastructure that if we are incapacitated in some way, will call into question our nation's safety, security, and economic viability. And so when we talk about transportation, whether it's through the devices that we use to be connected, the food we eat, or how we get from point A to point B, we need people to keep these systems running. And so we are competing with every other sector. And so we have an aging population of workers. We have a burgeoning population with increased birth rate, and we have all of these other things we're competing against. So what's my point? My point is we need to get down to the K through 12 sector to start teaching kids about transportation. Because if you ask a general person right now, what is available in this field, they're going to tell you bus driver, airline pilot, and maybe train engineer. But as a psychologist, I'm here to tell you there's work for everybody. And this is an exciting field. So come join us. There you go. Yeah, I always tell people that too. Look, we got HR, finance, IT, procurement, legal, PR. I mean, everything you can imagine in a major organization, we have it. And uh, and we need people to work in those fields. Karen, you are a great leader. Thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. Good to see you today. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. 
Listening to this great interview with Karen Philbrick, I got very caught up in her enthusiasm and excitement about her work. How can you prepare your organization's leadership to give a great interview like this? First, when you're contacted for an interview or contacting the press yourself, prepare interview talking points. What is it that you want your leadership to accomplish in this interview? Set this as the topic of your interview and then break down that topic into two or at the most three talking points your leadership must get across. The interview might involve much more than that, but prepare your speaker to return to those points whenever possible. When you've handed those talking points over to your leadership to study, you get to work on studying who is doing the interviewing and the outlet they represent. You'll know who that is, of course, but nailing a great interview requires reading past work and digging into audience demographics. For example, you could read the comments on a reporter's posted stories. If you come up with something relevant, such as coverage your leadership might want to mention in their own interview, work that into your talking points. Finally, really great interview subjects, practice, practice, practice. Sit down with your leader and pose questions based on the talking points until they get comfortable with their responses. You can even ask the interviewer to send over questions in advance. If you'd like to talk more about interview prep or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Hi, this is Mike Bismarck, Regional Sales Director for Proterra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about leadership, mentorship, and kindness with the hopes that it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Listening to this week's guest reiterates the continued need for mentorship and leadership within our industry and the benefits that it lends us. An invigorating description of the history of the Mineta Transit Institute and its continued purpose of improving the mobility of people and goods. One of the topics alluded to throughout and a hot topic within the industry is continued workforce development and the need to fill the future pipeline. Within our industry, we are surrounded by incredibly knowledgeable leaders and peers that are efforting daily on amazing projects aiming to improve, enhance, and create the great rider experience, as well as the workplaces that we're all part of. As we look to bring on the next person for any of the positions within the transit industry, it's vitally important to mentor, share, and just like kindness, make transit cool. As we look around at the transit agencies, the research institutes, APTA, CUTA conferences, and all the learning opportunities and resources that are available, you do not have to look far to see the many amazing people that are sharing these learnings, experiences, and ongoing projects. Simply thanks to it all. We need to make sure that we're all working hard to share experiences with everyone at all ages and all levels. Sometimes the future of transportation may not realize they are the future, but we need to remind them and let them know we'd be excited to have them. Thanks for listening. Kindness is cool and have a great week. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged. Hopefully you enjoyed that great interview with Karen Philbrick. Now we want to take a look at the future of public transportation in our final segment today. Most of you know this is our fifth year of the podcast, Transit Unplugged, and we're celebrating with many new features. Uh, We have a brand new logo, which you've seen, the microphone with kind of the map with the stop points on it, a brand new website, transitunplugged.com, which is really a repository of information about each episode. And now it's not just including kind of uh, the link to the audio, but it also includes lots of other information that came from the podcast. For instance, websites that the uh, guest may have mentioned or links to things that are talked about in the episode, plus links to all of our social media platforms now, which include our normal website, but our social media sites include LinkedIn, our YouTube site, 
our Twitter site, uh, and also an Instagram site. All of those have links on the website. If you go to the bottom of transitunplugged.com, we'd encourage you to go to the YouTube page, especially, and subscribe to our Transit Unplugged TV website. You can also just Google Transit Unplugged TV or go to YouTube and look for it. And that's where we have all the episodes of our brand new program. If you haven't watched it, the first episode is out now. Uh, there, the Each one half hour episode will air once a month. And it is a deep dive into one city or uh, region's transit system or conference and leaders there. The first episode featured MJ Maynard, the CEO of Las Vegas's transit system, uh, and also some of her staff and a look at behind the scenes of what it takes to run a major transit system. It's kind of like what I describe as an Anthony Bourdain style travel show, where instead of just focusing on the food and chefs, though, we focus on transit and the transit exec. So I think you'll find it a great show for you to watch. It has a global appeal. We're not just doing uh Folks in North America, we're interviewing folks and visiting transit systems now around the world. And so I encourage you again to go to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, subscribe to it. So every month you can catch our half hour episode. It's a show made by and for people who work in and around the public transit industry. Speaking of the public transportation industry, I'd like to share with you what I see as five of the top trends headed into now that we're in 2022. And the first one has to do with the, Transport, the Transportation Reauthorization Act, or the infrastructure bill that I talked about at the top of the show. And basically, that is the number one trend going into 2022, as I see it here in the U.S. especially, is implementing that bill. All the funds that are coming out of that. The Federal Transit Administration recently had a phone call to kind of kick it off, and over 3,000 people joined the call from transit agencies and companies around the country. That shows you, the obviously, the level of interest is there as the spigot is turned on in Washington in a brand new way. And so how transit agencies are going to use those funds and competing for the you know, $100 billion or so in competitive grants, uh, that's going to take up a lot of time and energy from transit agencies. Other focuses are on zero emission buses and equity and inclusion in public transportation. As I've mentioned multiple times in my speaking engagements and here on the podcast, I believe that the COVID pandemic provided the transportation industry worldwide an inflection point where we could pause and reflect on what it is that we're truly about. Are we primarily here just to provide A to B transportation for commuters, or is there more? Well, because of the pandemic and because of the reduction in ridership, especially in commuter transportation, transit agencies have largely made a shift. Now, in addition to commuter transportation being the goal, they're also focusing on policy goals. And some of those policy goals include cleaning up the environment. Um, that's what the zero emission buses are about. And also providing more equity and inclusion in our cities by using public transportation. Also, a big trend going into 2022 is recruiting and retaining employees. The great resignation didn't just hit office workers. It also was there among drivers and mechanics, skilled mechanics of our transit systems. Most transit systems now could use 100 to 200 drivers right off the bat. Uh, and companies that are involved in public transportation as well need more employees. So recruiting those folks, figuring out ways to make their schedules more flexible uh, on top of the increases in salaries that have already been brought on, I think are going to be key for transit agencies in this year. And finally, getting passengers back on the bus or back on the train, back on to transit or mobility. That is the final big trend, right? Folks are trying individualized demand services, often called microtransit across the country. They're also 
rebooting their bus networks, kind of like Houston did at the beginning. But now with the understanding that we don't necessarily have the peak of the peak anymore in most cities uh, that have gone to hybrid work schedules for the office workers and the big, tall buildings downtown. And then they're trying to integrate their transit networks so that the bus service and the microtransit uh, and, you know, bringing in Uber, Lyft and other companies like Userve and others, they will now be used to pull people into the overall transit network. So it's first and last mile solutions. It's the bus routes better integrating with the light rail and the subway. In most cities like Baltimore that I used to run, the bus routes were laid out 50 years ago and they follow a lot of times the trolley routes and most of them go into the downtown areas. And they were never really comprehensively um, reoriented to take into consideration the fact that now there's rail in a lot of cities. And so as part of this rebooting of bus networks, many other folks are working on integrating their transit networks and also bringing into play, obviously, other forms of new mobility, such as scooters and bikes, et cetera. So those are the five hot trends for the year, implementing the new Transportation Reauthorization Act or the infrastructure bill, zero emission buses, equity and inclusion in public transportation, recruiting drivers and mechanics, and getting passengers back onto transit. If you'd like me to talk to your staff at your transit agency or your company about these trends, I'll be happy to drop in to a staff meeting via Zoom or Teams. Just let me know. Send us a note at info at transitunplugged.com. Thanks so much for being with us today on another episode of the podcast. Stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged with our guest, Karen Philbrick. Coming up next week on Transit Unplugged is the first of two Legacy Leaders episodes. And next week, we have Rod Deirdrin, Paul Tolliver, Fred Gilliam, and Robert Prince on the show. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, Ride safe and ride happy.